Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. With the holidays around the corner, this week's show features the authors of two books that you'd probably enjoy reading and giving, Jed Pearl's new Alexander Calder biography and Unpacking My Library, Artists in Their Books, which was written and edited by Joe Steffens and Matthias Neumann. Of course, this program features books all the time. If you're looking for books to read or give, look through our programs from the last year or so for authors and books such as Kelly Jones's Vital South of Pico, the MFA Boston published catalog for Casanova, a great read and visual eye candy. That show is now at the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth. There's the extraordinary Paint the Revolution Mexican Modernism 1910-1950 catalog, one of those catalogs that's somehow better than a really, really great show. That show debuted at the Philadelphia Museum of Art before traveling to the MFA Houston. I'm particularly fond of Jane Kamensky's magnificent John Singleton Copley biography, probably the best art biography of the year. It's titled A Revolution in Color. Simon Kelly and Esther Bell's excellent book on Degas, the Impressionists, and the Parisian millinery trade, which is really a look at how artists saw a rapidly changing city, is a terrific read. There's also Painted in Mexico, 1700 to 1790, Alona Katsu and Company's marvelous eight-pound catalog for a Pacific Standard Time show now at the L.A. County Museum of Art. We'll feature that exhibition on the program next year. Speaking of LACMA, there's Stephanie Barron's superb John McLaughlin catalog, which was published in the last few weeks of 2016. Two more before we get to this week's show. The Institute of Contemporary Art Boston's Mark Dion catalog is the best contemporary art book of 2018. We had Dion on the show just a couple weeks ago. And don't miss Sharon Hecker's A Moment's Monument about Medardo Rosso and the birth of modern sculpture. It's a wonder and will change how you think about how sculpture became contemporary. On to this week. My first guest is Jed Pearl. He's the author of Calder, The Conquest of Time, The Early Years, 1898 to 1940, the first in a planned two-volume biography of the American sculptor Alexander Calder. The book was recently published by Knopf. Amazon offers it for $30. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. That's a big discount from the $50 cover price. Pearl is a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books and was the art critic of the New Republic for 20 years. Then I'll talk with Joe Steffens about Unpacking My Library, Artists, and Their Books, which was recently published by Yale University Press. But first, Jed Pearl, after the break. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view through March 3rd is Living Proof, Drawing in 19th Century Japan, exploring the methods, techniques, and subjects of drawings during Japan's Edo and Meiji periods. Originally created as the primary step in making ukoye prints, drawings of the type exhibited were often discarded or destroyed through the process of printing. With more than 70 of these rare works on display, Living Proof bears witness to the working practices of some of the most celebrated print artists of the era, including Hokusai, Kuniyoshi, and Yoshitoshi. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Experience the high life of 18th century Europe through the eyes of its greatest lover, Giacomo Casanova. Luxury, adventure, intrigue, and seduction. With more than 200 works, including paintings, sculpture, and decorative arts, in a major exhibition bringing his sensational world to life. Casanova, The Seduction of Europe, through December 31st at the Kimball Art Museum. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. Attend an international symposium on December 9th. Indigenous Knowledge and the Making of Colonial America. And learn how indigenous people's knowledge of art, architecture, science, medicine, and governance shaped colonial Latin America. 
This event is related to two must-see PST LALA exhibitions, Golden Kingdoms, Luxury and Legacy in the Ancient Americas at the Getty Center, and Visual Voyages, Images of Latin American Nature from Columbus to Darwin at the Huntington Library Art Collections and Botanical Gardens. Learn more about this free event and get tickets at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Jed Pearl, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be with you. Alexander Calder, known as Sandy to, to most, one of the great sculptors of the 20th century, of course. What made him an interesting biography subject rather than just merely an interesting artist? If you're going to write a biography of an artist, I think you need to approach somebody who had a full life, a life full of not just making art, but also a life full of friendships, fascinating encounters, engagement in interesting places at interesting times. And Calder's life is so full of that kind of thing. The man had a gift for friendship. He was a major player in art worlds on both sides of the Atlantic, in the New York art world and the Parisian art world from the 1920s to the 1970s. So there's an incredibly rich tapestry about this life, which attracted me to Calder as a subject, beyond the fact that I just love his work. And another big issue that really, really interested me with Calder is you have a man who was a vanguard artist, a pioneering abstractionist in the 1930s, the man who really developed more fully than any other artist of his time, the idea of kinetic sculpture, sculpture that moved from the three dimensions we know, into what he and many people thought of as the fourth dimension of time. So here's this vanguard artist, and then later in his life, in the 60s and 70s, he becomes one of the most widely admired and beloved artists in the world, really. So I was interested, in addition to interested by the life, the friendships, the social world, milieu he moved in, I was also fascinated by this quality of a man who is an avant-gardist, who also becomes popular. And so then you have this fascinating kind of link between what we people often talk of as high art and uh, a more popular kind of fame. That tendency of Calder to travel and make friends quickly certainly comes through in the book. It, the, the, the overlapping people he knew and relationships he formed with people is, is downright recalling of John Richardson's third volume on Picasso, in which the cast of characters is enormous. <laughs> the, the book opens in Philadelphia and details both Calder's family there and the impact Philadelphia would have on him as an artist. Who is Sandy Calder's father? And how did Philadelphia work its way into his life and his work? Calder come, came from a, a family of artists and on his father's side from a family of sculptors. Both his father, who was known as A. Sterling Calder, and his paternal grandfather, Alexander Milne Calder, were very, very well-known public sculptors. His grandfather did most of the hundreds of sculptures that to this day decorate the Philadelphia City Hall, which is kind of grandiose Victorian wedding cake of a building. Calder's father was in the first quarter of the 20th century, enormously well-known American sculptor. And Calder's mother, Nanette Letterer Calder, a woman who came from Milwaukee, met 
Calder's father in Philadelphia. They were both studying at the Pennsylvania Academy. She was a very interesting portrait painter. So Calder came from a family of artists. He had a sister who was two years older. And I think one of the ways to understand the extraordinary confidence that people always noticed in Calder later in life, he was he was fearless. Setbacks did not set him back. He He always looked at the bright side of things. He felt no matter what was you know, standing in his way, he could make his way forward. He was bold. He was daring. And I think having grown up in a family of artists and having been an adored son, a very creative and imaginative son in a family of artists, I think that is part of the key to to his, his psychology and, and to the boldness that really enabled him to move into kinetic art, into the mobile in, in the 1930s. So there was that. And I think his parents also really, really encouraged the exercise of his imagination. Beginning in Philadelphia, when they left Philadelphia when he was about eight years old, his father got tuberculosis, and they ended up living in Southern California in Pasadena for three years. And there, his parents were friends with a lot of people involved in the arts and crafts movement in Pasadena. This is something that nobody had ever really looked at or thought about until I began working on this biography. And Calder, as a boy of 11 or so, began working in sheet metal, and he made little sculptures of animals in sheet metal, one of which meant so much to him that when he had a retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in 1943, when he was about 45 years old, he saw that 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 one of those little sheet brass sculptures of a dog was included in his retrospective. Now, that work, I think, this work he did as a boy, was precipitated, encouraged, however you want to put it, by friendships his parents had with arts and crafts metal workers in Pasadena. So you have this boy growing up in an artistic family, a family of artists, and artists who are very aware of the the connections between creativity, imagination, childhood, you know, Wordsworth said uh, the child is father of the man. That was a kind of idea that his parents were very attuned to. So here's a an artist who from the very beginning is kind of overloaded in a sense by his family with possibilities. Every bit of creativity, instinct, imagination he has is sort of magnified in this artistic world that he grows up. In some ways, you mentioned Picasso's friendships. In a way, it's not unlike Picasso, who as a boy had a father who was an artist, not as anywhere near as successful an artist as Coulter's father. But I think growing up in a, for a creative person, growing up in a creative family can somehow magnify your own child apprehension. And I think if you're lucky, you carry that sense of possibility into adulthood. You mentioned Pasadena. Sandy Calder lived there from roughly ages 8 to 11. The family leaves Pasadena in 1909. One of the real kind of jaw-droppers of the book for me was that you think that Cirque Calder, the famous Calder Circus, was influenced by the Tournament of Roses parade. How so? Well, the Tournament of Roses was quite new when, when the Calders were in Pasadena. And again, for this boy, the pageantry there the chariot races and the the sense of, of of a kind of marvelous ritual ritualized celebration fascinated Calder and were and then flash forward about 
20 years. He's in Paris, and he indeed includes you know, these kinds of processions in his in the Cirque Calder, this miniature performance which he begins giving in Paris uh, almost immediately, shortly after he arrives in Paris in 1926. So I think the sense of pageantry, playfulness, the delight of all of that, which he experienced in Pasadena, seeing the Turn of Roses, is reimagined through the medium of the Ringling and Barnum Bailey Circus and other American circus, also French circuses that he's seeing in the 1920s, is reimagined in his own Sir Calder. And indeed, the chariot, that imagery from, from Pasadena, recurs. There's, for instance, there's a mobile from the 1950s, which is nowadays called Chariot. There's, it's not quite clear if the title is a Calder title or a title somebody else gave to it. It's actually a mobile that is in the museum at Stanford University, the Cantor Center. And it is a mobile that evokes a chariot with pulled by a number of horses, or it's one of the things that it evokes. And I think there, there's also a memory of the Tournament of Roses. One of the experiences that Sandy Calder had as a result of his father's professional life was to experience and live through the 1915 Pan Pacific Exposition, which was a World's Fair in San Francisco meant to both celebrate the Panama Canal, but also to mark San Francisco's return after the return to prominence after the disastrous 1906 earthquake and fire. At the fair, or related to his father's work for the fair, I guess I should say, Sandy Young Calder saw something called a pointing machine. What 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 is that? What was that? And how did it have an you know what impact did it have on him? The pointing machine is a mechanism for enlarging models, small size sculptures, what are called maquettes, enlarging them to a a monumental size and. Many of the World's Fairs or expositions that have been held in the U.S., the ones that have been held in the East Coast, and most sculptors, most professional sculptors, tended to be on the East Coast in the late 19th, early 20th century. For the East Coast Fairs, the sculptures would be done at full scale and kind of delivered to wherever the fair was. With with the Panama Pacific Exposition, it was looking like a, a real problem to try to transport a lot of enormous monumental sculptural works from the East Coast to the West Coast. So what they decided to do was sculptors made models of their works, and the models were transported to San Francisco, where using a pointing machine, you would have the the model, the maquette, on one kind of turntable, and then you have another turntable with a basic substructure. And by gradually turning the maquette and turning this larger substructure, you would build up on the larger turntable a an oversized a monumental sized replica of the small maquette okay so it was a, uh, a a kind of mechanical method of making small things into big things and sandy who was both a very uh, he at this point he's a high school student very artistically inclined and also sort of technically inclined and curious kid was fascinated by this process of making the small thing into a big thing. And years later, I mean, there, there's often something uncanny. Uh, there's a kind of a whole thread of uncanny echoes and mirrorings in Calder's life. After World War II, really, really doesn't start until the early 1960s, Calder 
finally begins to fulfill a dream which he'd had since the 1930s of creating monumental sculpture, huge abstract sculptures for public places. And at that point, he begins to do really what his father did, what he watched his father do in the teens in San Francisco, because Calder would begin in the 60s and 70s. He would make a maquette, perhaps a, a couple of feet high, and he would bring this to an ironworks, and he worked both in Connecticut, where he lived really basically full-time in the 40s and a lot of the 50s, but then in the 50s and 60s and 70s, he and his wife were living more and more in France, and there he lives near the town of Tours, and there's a big ironworks in Tours. So he would bring these maquettes to an ironworks in Connecticut or in France, and there, working with technicians, they would begin to enlarge these maquettes, first to a mid-sized, sometimes there would actually be two mid-sized models, and then ultimately enlarge these, what began as a, say, two-foot-high maquette into a sculpture tens of tens of feet high that would then maybe go to Montreal or Chicago or Grand Rapids or Jerusalem. And when he, when he found himself doing that, when Calder went into the 60s and 70s, he is, in a sense, recapitulating what he saw his father doing 40, 50, 50, we're talking 50 years earlier. So there is this wonderful quality in Calder's life of these echoings and mirrorings. And there's also, I think, an echo of his father's feeling about the importance of public art. I don't think anybody before I was working on this biography had actually read the writing that Calder's father, Sterling Calder, produced in the 1910s and 20s, where his father talked about the idea of producing, creating first-rate art, profoundly expressive art, and giving it a place, a major place in a democratic, heterogeneous society. This was something that was an ambition of his father's, and it really became very much an ambitious ambition of Calder's. Calder, we now forget, was one of the first people to work to present large-scale abstract sculpture in public places. You know, today, 40, 50 years after he began doing this, it's, it seems to us ordinary, the idea of having big abstract sculpture in public. But when he was first doing this in the 1960s, it was con very controversial, very controversial. So things that young Calder saw at the Panama Pacific Exposition echo really all through his life. One of the pleasures of the book is throughout, you note places where you think young Calder may have found what became his interest in, in movement and in sculpture that moved. Is the pointing machine and the way it worked one of one of those places? It's interesting you say that because the the largest sculpture comes to life in a sense as you rotate the two machines and and mark you know the outside of the model on this enlarged form. I mean Calder was a, a guy who was from boyhood fascinated by the kinetic by you know he, he made for he he lived when he was in high school his parents had moved from san francisco to oakland across the bay and he stayed in san francisco with an architect friend of the family and this man was an avid gardener and a lot of californians will will identify with this he ha he had an ongoing bottle battle with slugs and Calder, you know, developed little young Calder, teenage Calder developed some kind of a skewering mechanism to get the slugs. So he was constantly inventing things like that. He was also a guy who loved 
movement. He was a very poor athlete, but he loved to be on the athletic field. He loved social dancing. You talk to people, even today, people who are in their 60s who were young, you know, children of friends of the Calders, they remember as kids these wild dancing parties the adults would have. And Calder you know, loved kind of flinging himself and a partner across the living room of their house in Connecticut. He and his wife had been in Brazil. They got into the samba. Somebody once said to me they taught everybody in Western Connecticut the samba, how to samba. So I think even things as basic as the man's sense of the kinetic come ultimately to affect the mobile, to, to help shape his interest in kinetic movement and sculpture. I should also say we've been talking about Pasadena and San Francisco. I think one of the, if you will, revelations of this biography is Calder is traditionally associated with Philadelphia, where he was born, where his parents met. But when you actually look at his early years, he spent something like six years before he went to college on the West Coast. And you think about California in you know, the first quarter of the 20th century. This was still really the frontier in many ways. And I think in ways that perhaps we can't exactly define, but in ways that are very significant, the experience of California and the freedom of California, and we're particularly, we're especially talking about he's in an artistic bohemian family living in California. I think the freedom of life in California is something that is there in him, in his spirit, through the rest of his life. That sense of openness, that convention doesn't constrain you in the way it perhaps does more on the East Coast, certainly back then. So the California ethos is much more significant for Calder and for becoming Calder than people have realized. We've been looking backward through the lens of knowing that Calder became a very major artist, but in, in Calder's own life, he doesn't decide to become an artist until his early 20s, and he decides to become an artist when he's in the West, for Pete's sake. So so why, where, where is that place where he decides to become an artist, and what about, you know, why there? What about that place nudged him there, if, if you will? Calder went to the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey, for college, which is a very, very fine and serious engineering school. Why did he study engineering? In high school, he was this brilliant student. He always had the answers first in math and science classes, but he was also sort of aimless. And his parents, I mean, I, I, I often, when I talk about this with groups, I say, you know, a lot of you, I'll, I'll say to people, a lot of you or some of you have probably had kids who as adolescents were really, really bright, but seemed not to know what they wanted to do. And that makes parents, serious parents, very anxious. And Calder's parents, were, I think, were thinking like, my God, what's going to happen to this kid? And so, you know, they talked about what he wanted to do. And he kind of, he had a friend in high school who was thinking of studying mechanical engineering. And he said, well, maybe I'll do that. So they were like, oh, wow, thank God. He, a little bit what he wants to do. So he goes off to studies engineering. But in college, he realizes that the career of an engineer is not a career of sort of imaginative tinkering and inventing things that I think is what engineering really meant to him. Engineering at that point is becoming a sort of industrial strength career. And a lot of his cohort, indeed, at Stevens went on to be executives in big American companies. And that was never going to be Calder. So after college, he takes 
all these jobs, he'll have a job for a month or three months as an engineer here or there doing one thing or another in New York, in the Midwest. And finally, he ends up, his sister and her husband are living in, in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. And he ends up there working in a lumber camp. His brother-in-law's family is involved in the timber industry. And he's doing some engineering stuff there involved with lumbering. But he's also beginning to realize, I mean, we're not quite sure what happens. But first of all, he's realizing engineering is not for him. And here he is at the furthest remove from New York, from the R world in New York that his parents are at this point very, very involved in. And it seems as if he begins to realize that this life in art, which he'd kind of been born into, is indeed really what he wanted. He's tried to get away from it in a way, but he can't. And so he writes to his mother and says, would you send me some paints? And he starts painting in the Pacific Northwest. And then shortly after that, he's back in New York studying at the Art Students League. You know, my book begins with a prologue, which is called I Was Framed. And in an unpublished series of kind of reminiscences and memories, Calder says, I wasn't brought up, I was framed. Now, he means literally by that his parents used him as a model. His mother would paint portraits of him, so he was literally framed in a portrait. And his father used him as a model for sculptures, so he was put on a pedestal as a boy by his father, and as a naked boy. And again, it's natural He's kind of surrounded by this stuff, and he wants to get away from it. But in a sense, when he really gets far away from it in, in the Pacific Northwest, and, and he also tells a story that he went up to Canada to talk to some man who was going to get him a job. And we don't know who this person was, but they have this conversation about what you want to do with your life. And it's almost as if this is some kind of prophetic figure, you know, who kind of drops out of the sky. We don't know who this person was exactly. And they have a conversation. He says to Calder, you should do what you want to do. And that's one of the kind of variations on how Calder finally decided to become an artist. But being an artist, being a sculptor is in his DNA, and he kind of fights it until he's about 25 years old. And then he embraces it with a, an energy and a ferocity that's astonishing. So you mentioned Calder moving back east. That's when he's 25, and, 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 he, and he goes to New York. And at that point, he's, he's still a painter. In the book, you have a really interesting image of maybe the last painting he makes in the West of a brutal, almost nihilistic, pre-Robert Adams-ish logging scene, which is a, a far cry from the Calder we would know. I'm going to skip over Calder, the painter, for the purposes of time. How does he go from using paints to playing with wire? That's a really interesting question, and I, I think to answer that question of how does he go from paint to wire, how does he go from painting to sculpture, you have to, in a way, embrace the mysteriousness of the creative imagination. I think there's a quality in Calder of backing his way into revelations and leaps, imaginative leaps, and often with Calder fooling around and then looking at his fooling around is a way that he takes himself into the profound seriousness of a new kind of vocabulary or a new way of making art. So that the wire begins, for instance, he, he, he makes a sundial for uh, an apartment he's living in New York out of wire. He makes a valentine 
for his mother out of Wire. Now, he'd worked with Wire as a little boy, but then as he's painting, as he's studying painting in New York in the mid-20s, he starts fiddling around with Wire. And then I think what happens with Calder sometimes is he looks at something he's done, and he says, hmm, there's more to it. And then that also happens in Paris, where he gets to Paris, and my feeling is he kind of has the sense that painting is not ultimately what he wants to do, but he doesn't really know what he wants to do. Again, we're not quite sure about the evolution here, but he starts working on these little figures, animals, acrobats, creating the bits and pieces that become the Sir Calder. And they're made out of wire and cloth, and he'll have a cork for a head and bits of string. And then, as he tells it, a friend says to him, an artist named Clay Spahn, who uh, says to him, well, what about making one out of wire, just out of wire? And Sir Calder's, hmm, that's interesting. And then he tries that. And the early wire figures, which are masterpieces, really, wonderful wire figures of Josephine Baker, the African-American dancer, entertainer, who was such a sensation in Paris, wire sculptures of acrobats. The early ones have a kind of Rococo, wild, spiraling, charming craziness about them. And if you watch the wire sculpture then from, say, 1927 to 1929, it becomes more and more austere and severe. And Calder himself wrote about sort of thinking that at the beginning, wire sculpture was this magnificent amusement. And then he begins to look at what he's done and he sees something more stripped down, more essential, maybe more profound there. And that, in turn, carries him in some way into the first abstractions of the 30s. So I think with Calder, it's often, and I think this is true of many creative people, there's an ability to kind of leap, perhaps before you totally know where you're going, and then to analyze what you've done. And out of that comes an awareness of where you go next. It's a kind of, it's not a totally conscious process. It's a, it's a combination of gutsy imagination and it'll, and analytical prowess, I would say, somehow combined. A moment ago, you mentioned the importance of California and the West to Calder. And in what you just said, there's another connection to the West, of course, Clay Spawn, who you mentioned pointed Calder toward wire, or at least taking it seriously, would himself go to California shortly thereafter and become a wildly influential teacher of, of artists such as Richard Diebenkorn in, in California. One of the things Calder does, if you will, with this wire he's making, and kind of really the last thing he does in, in New York before leaving, and we'll get to that in a moment, is Animal Sketching. What is Animal Sketching? Animal Sketching is a book that Calder published in 1926. Calder was fascinated by movement, by all kinds of movements, the movements of people down the street in New York City. He was also fascinated by the movement of animals and how even when an animal is still, there's a sense of movement, of the possibility of movement. And he loved going to the zoo in New York, both Central Park and Bronx zoos, and and sketching animals. And he had this idea of doing a book, which was kind of a, a how-to book for artists about how to sketch animals, how to draw animals. And so he did a book, he produced a book, which was published in 26, which had these wonderful ink drawings of his of animals, both in motion and at rest. Uh, very sort of brief texts 
by him, and apparently some of the, the publisher thought there wasn't enough text, and some other texts were added. But texts in which he talks about the nature of, of movement, of the kinetic, and how important it is for an artist to, to kind of grasp both movement and the possibility of movement. And this is, again, another one of these many strands that goes into the evolution of the mobile a decade later. Very quickly after the book is published, Calder leaves New York for Paris. And almost as soon as he's in Paris, he starts making a miniature circus. I don't know, maybe it shouldn't be surprising to me that as soon as he arrives in old Europe, albeit a booming new city in old Europe, he kind of picks up where he left off as as an artist and maker instead of feeling like he has to engage his new place, Paris, so quickly. So why does he start making a miniature circus in, in Paris so quickly? I think he's really uncertain when he gets to Paris what his next move is. And he's been looking at the circus a lot in New York. He'd gone, he'd not only seen the Ringling and Barnum Bailey Circus in New York, but he'd gone down to Florida to their winter home for a period of time to sketch and draw the circus. He'd done some paintings of a circus. And he gets to Paris, and he, partly he's trying to figure out how he's going to make a living. And he has this idea. He's thinking of trying to sell some ideas for toys to somebody who will maybe put them in production. He seems to have the idea that some kind of a performance, early visitors to the Sir Calder referred to it as a sort of puppet or marionette show. I think he had some idea that there might be a way to do public performances of this circus of his and make a little bit of money. So he's basically kind of searching for possibilities in this direction and that direction for what he can do once he's in Paris. And I think he doesn't quite know who he wants to be as a, as a painter or a sculptor at that point. So again, he sort of, he, he takes a step back and experiments with this miniature version of a of, of what is a you know kind of enormous world again we were talking before about the sense of this interest in, in scale and the small and the enormous which he'd first witnessed when he saw the pointing machine at the Panama Pacific Ex Exposition he's always interested all through his life in the big and the small and how they're related to each other so I think by creating this miniature circus which he manipulates it may frankly have given him a sense of of power of control over things when he gets to Paris, which is must have felt overwhelming at first. He doesn't he bear, he doesn't know French when he first gets there. He's you know a very small fish in a very big pond at that point. Another thing I think about this that's important to understand about the circus is Paris itself, Bohemian Paris in the twenties and thirties when Calder lived there was a kind of circus. People dressed in a kind of stylized manner. I mean, you think of people like Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway, uh, Scott Fitzgerald. These are larger-life personalities who each had a, a, a kind of, a, a particular kind of character to them. They, they dressed in a certain way. They acted a certain way. They were very, very clear about who they were in public, out in the world. And I think Calder responds to that. He responds to the sense of Paris as a place of presentation, of, of play acting, of performing. 
And so his little circus becomes, I think, a way of sort of reflecting the sense of a world where everybody is on stage. Everybody is another person who he must have crossed paths at the time, a writer named Robert McAllman referred to Paris. And he said it was we were being geniuses together. So we're in the late 20s. Calder is in his early 30s, born in 1898. And he's beginning to go back and forth between the States and Paris, living the transatlantic life. You have some great passages on how he even had kind of a favorite ship he liked to take across the Atlantic. And sometime in here, he meets Miro. And and their relationship would go on to be along with, you know, the Picasso-Matisse relationship or the Pollock-Still or the Still-Rothko dysfunctional relationship among the most fruitful and impactful back and forths of the 20th century. So how does Calder meet Miro and how does that meeting evolve into not just influence, but friendship and communication back and forth in the work? Calder meets Miro through another friend. And this is a woman named Babe Hawes, who was an American who was in Paris beginning a career as a fashion designer. And she is actually back in America by the time she suggests to Calder. We're not quite sure how they met, but she suggests to Calder that he uh, look up another friend of hers, Miro. And of course, both Miro and Calder are foreigners in Paris, as so many of the people in their artistic and creative literary world in Paris were. Calder's an American, Miro is a Spaniard from Catalonian guy. And Calder looks up Miro, and Miro is already, we're talking the late 20s, already has a, quite a reputation in vanguard circles among the surrealists. But Miro is a guy who always marches to his own drummer. André Breton, the, the sort of ringleader of the surrealists, the poet, says at some point that Miro is you know, the most surrealist of us all. But Miro doesn't like to be labeled. He wants to follow the play, the meanderings of his own imagination and be his own man. And that, I think, fascinates Calder. Calder gets that at the beginning. Although Calder is somewhat bemused by the first works by Miro that he sees, which are very, very pared down, stripped down works, I think Calder, he knows that his bemusement signals something, something significant. And he wants to go deeper into not only this friendship, but the work that this man is doing. And I think Miro later says that he's somewhat bemused by the first works of Calder's that he sees, these, these wire works. Nobody else is doing things like this. So I think they meet up as two men who are both very much a part of the avant-garde world in Paris, where you know, everything has a label. It's surrealism, it's futurism, it's constructivism, it's cubism. And at the same time that they're very much a part of this, they both feel very much that they're independent, that they want to walk their own line, that they want to follow their own trail wherever it leads. And this connects them throughout their lives. I mean, they're still friends when Calder dies in 1976. And I think the core of the friendship is this interest in being immersed in modernity, being immersed in all the ideas and dreams and hopes that you're sharing with the artists and poets and musicians around you, but at the same time being absolutely determined to follow your own path. 
And that's not an easy thing to do, but it's something that these two men do. And there's this kind of handing back. It's almost like you imagine you know, two friends with a, with a jug of wine or something, sort of you know, ha- passing it back and forth and kind of reinforcing one another with this ser- shared sense of mission. At times, their imagery can be quite close, quite similar. The sense of, of the, these, these elements sort of released in some unknown, imagined universe. I mean, there, is, there are definitely connections in, in the imagery. But on the other hand, Calder is much more focused on sculpture. And of course, Miro much more focused on painting. But the real connection is this connection in terms of how you grow and evolve and nourish yourself as an artist over a period, long period of time. It's easy or or was easy for me to forget that when Calder met Miro, he was still pretty much a representational artist. When does Calder give up representation and why? Calder in the fall of 1930 goes to the studio of Mondrian. Mondrian has actually come to see a performance of the Cirque Calder. And sometime after, a few weeks afterwards, Calder goes to Mondrian's studio. Now, Calder has obviously been aware of abstract art since the mid-1920s, been all around him. But he's never felt that abstract art was in his heart or in his soul somehow. He's never really identified with it. And he goes to Mondrian's studio in Paris. And Mondrian's studio was a miraculous place. It was a room with light coming from several sides of the, this oddly shaped room. It was actually a five-sided room. And Mondrian doesn't just have his paintings there, which are these very, very radical paintings, the most stripped-down abstract paintings anybody had done at that point, virtually anybody had done. Mondrian has also turned the entire studio into a kind of composition. He's taken rectangles of colored paper and arranged them along the wall. And so you would walk into this room with this miraculous light, and it was as if you were enveloped by abstraction, by an abstract painting. And Calder talked about this many times in later years, and what he was saying was that when he stood in Mondrian's studio, suddenly he understood the possibility of abstraction in his heart, not just in his head. He understood abstraction as something possible for him, humanly possible. And then he goes home and he does a series of abstract paintings, paintings, mind you. He first backs up into painting. And then by the very end of 30, the very beginning of 31, he's doing abstract sculpture. So again, it, you know, there's something very important. There's an important lesson here about the nature of the imagination, certainly the imagination of a genius. You don't just understand things intellectually. A genius doesn't understand things only intellectually. They have to understand them emotionally in some gut way. And it's Mondrian's studio, it's that experience that gave Calder this gut sense of what abstract art was. And then he leaps into abstraction. The abstract sculptures, these very pared down works that he shows early in 31 at the Gallery Persier in Paris, are among the most radical abstract sculptures that had ever been done. Zipping ahead a bit to the mobiles, is is movement what gets him to the mobiles, the thing he wants to get into the work? Is that the key link from something on the ground to something that is not as fixed? Movement, the sense of the kinetic, which was always very important to Calder, is certainly one of the impulses, the necessities that propels him into 
the creation of mobiles. But here, as in, I think, almost anything in the life of a great, the career of a great imagination, there are multiple impulses. And one of the aspects here that I talk about a lot in the book is the whole question of dimensions beyond the three dimensions in which we we think of ourselves as existing. And I make the point that in the world Calder was moving in, in this Parisian avant-garde bohemian world, there was a lot of talk in the 20s and 30s about dimensions beyond the third dimension. What is the fourth dimension? Is the fourth dimension another dimension of space? Is the fourth dimension time? And there was this sort of wacko Russian mystic character, Ospensky, who published a book, which was published in English in 31, in which he discussed not just the fourth dimension, but the fifth, sixth, seventh dimensions. And I think part of what interested Calder was this question of spaces, places beyond the spaces and places that we know immediately with the naked eye. I mean, his friend Marcel Duchamp, who's the man who named, dubbed the mobile the mobile, was also very interested in these matters. Duchamp thought a lot about the fourth dimension. So I think there's the impulse behind the mobile, the multiple impulses behind the invention of the mobile, go from things as visceral and immediate as the desire of a man to be a dancer, to move physically, to just feel his body moving. It goes from something as immediate as that to something, dare I say, as metaphysical as the question of dimensions beyond the third dimension. You also concluded that bicycling was important to Calder, and, and, and not just because of his friend Duchamp's bicycle wheel, which was something I had never and maybe should have considered but hadn't. So how and why was bicycling important? Calder apparently was known by all his Parisian friends in the late 20s as the bicyclist. He was always zipping around Paris on his bicycle. And you know, the bicycle, you know, the, 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 the kind of bicycle we're familiar with is an invention of, I guess, the end of the 19th century. And there was a whole idea that a bicycle, when a person is on a bicycle, a person is kind of taken out of their, their normal, I don't know, you know, kind of physical, spatial nature. You know, the walking person and the bicycling person are sort of different beings. And the bicycling person has a sense of, again, possibilities of movement, of of insight, of revelation that the person who's merely walking doesn't have. You know, think of the photographs of the boy photographer Lartigue, which I think captures some also of that miracle of fast movement. And I think the sense of a machine, the bicycle, which can kind of take you into another mental, physical state, somehow is also there in the background of the invention of the mobile, which is a kind of, you know, a mobile is, is in a way a living being. A mobile seems to, when you watch a mobile moving, it has a will, a sense of volition all its own. And I, I think partly what Calder was trying to do when he begins especially to work, to create the wind-driven mobiles, the ones you will either push with your hand or let be by air currents, he's trying to give this sculpture some of that sense of imaginative engagement in the world, physical engagement in the world, that he must have experienced as he rode around on his bicycle. Calder doesn't really settle anywhere for any length of time, but he more or less returns to the United States after a few years in Paris. Why does he, I don't know if give up on Paris is the, is the right phrase, but why does he 
he move on from Paris for a time? He and his wife leave Paris in 33. I think they decide they want to start a family in America. The, the situation in, in Europe is darkening. Hitler is in power in Germany. Authoritarian regimes, both of the left in Russia and of the right in Italy and Germany, are on the rise, and, and uh, right-wing parties all over Western Europe are on the rise. And the, the, the great dream of Paris, if you will, the great optimism of Paris between the wars is fading. And I think they, they want to go back home. I mean, one of the wonderful things about the Calder story is that it is played against these, you know, kind of great, you know, world political forces. And of course, the Calders go back to Paris, to France in 37, as the situation is really darkening. And their Calder becomes involved in the Spanish Pavilion for the 37 World's Fair, which is, of course, his mercury fountain there sits just within, you know, feet of Picasso's Guernica. And there, Calder finds himself engaged in the the battle to preserve a democratic Spain, a battle which is, of course, lost only months later when Franco's forces, the fascist forces, triumph Spain. So the Calder story is played against these extraordinary world historical events. And during World War II, when the Calders are in America, so many friends from Europe as exiles and emigres are arriving in the United States. And the Calders have a very important role welcoming people, making people feel comfortable, making people feel at home who have lost their homes in Europe. That, you know, that, that idea that Calder's story plays out against events is even true when he's a young boy in, in, in national events. So Calder is, when we were talking about Calder being in Pasadena, you know, Calder's in semi-tropic California, as the railroad calls it, in the years when Los Angeles is beginning to pass San Francisco in terms of population, you know, in terms of how you define what, what and where Los Angeles is, which, you know, still no one knows how to do. <laughs> you know, that happens in 1919, any way you count it. And so when, when Calder is there in the late aught and in, in San Francisco in the early teens, he's, he's there at that moment, too. So this may just be me, but it seems like in the late 30s, as we reach the end of, of this first volume, that Calder's work starts getting bigger. First, I guess, is it? And, and secondly, if it is, is that a factor in, in where he, he chooses to live and, and work as we get into the late 30s? Calder, up until 33, up until he and his wife returned to America, has really been an urban guy. He lives in cities. And when they come back to America, when he and his wife, Louisa, come back to America in 33, they buy a very rundown farmhouse in Litchfield County in western Connecticut. And although for the next decade, they live a lot of the time in New York City, particularly in the winter when it's really hard to be on a, a farm with not that much heat in the wilds of Connecticut, at the same time, they're spending a lot of time in summers in the country. And the expansiveness of the countryside, I think, has a profound effect on his work. And yes, you begin to have larger works. You begin to have works which kinetically are really tied to the movements of wind currents, works with elements that are designed to catch the movement of the wind. And you also have an increasing move. It also maybe has begun in Paris before he leaves in 33, but an increasing move toward an interest in the biomorphic forms and a way also return to, you know, the kind of zoomorphic animal-like forms, 
which had interested him when he was doing animal sketching in 26. The vocabulary expands as the size of the work expands. And he's also very much dreaming of monumental works in the 30s, although he has very few opportunities, really no opportunities, hardly any opportunities to do them until the 1960s. But the the experience of the countryside of, of, of Western Connecticut really reshapes his formal vocabulary. And what then you find as you kind of move forward into the story that I'm going to tell in volume two is that he will move back and forth throughout his career from elements that seem to be inspired by to connect with the natural world in one way or another to other works where the elements are more strictly geometric, seem more perhaps idealized and platonic in their nature. One of the things I love about Calder is the richness and variety of his vocabulary, of his visual vocabulary. You never know what Calder's going to do next. His work goes in many different directions. And for instance, toward the end of his life, he goes back to an interest in animal forms and even figurative forms that had largely been absent from his sculpture for many years. So he's constantly, you know, in a way, dipping back into this very deep well of ideas, experiences, attitudes, visions that that he's kind of evolved over the first uh, 30, 40 years of his life. There are two things in the book that I think kind of perfectly illustrate what, what you were just talking about. One is the terrific picture of Calder in his Roxbury, that's the town in Litchfield County, studio in 1941. It's a Herbert Matter picture. And we see mobiles in the air. We see Calder surrounded by stuff on tables and probably even more stuff on the floor. But we also see the landscape beyond the, the enormous studio windows and the hills rising in the distance. And you also have a great detail about how in 1937, so when Calder is 39, for the first time on his passport, he describes his, his hair as gray, which of course may, may be true, but also it kind of reads as a way of saying I'm I'm 39 I'm fully formed as an adult a person an, an artist I've become what I'm going to be you mentioned volume two when do we get it and and kind of what does it cover volume two is going to come out two years from now and in volume two Calder begins as an artist admired in avant-garde circle very well known but to a certain group of people and what happens in volume two is that he goes from being that avant-garde artist to be an artist who's world famous, who's known to people who know the names of perhaps a handful of artists. And the story of volume two is how he and his wife, while dealing with an ever-expanding audience, retain their kind of essential bohemian avant-garde spirit. And how he aims, how Calder aims in these enormous works he does for things like Expo 67 in Montreal or the 68 Olympics in uh, Mexico City, how he aims in these monumental later works to bring the richness, the wildness of his imagination to an ever-growing public. Jed Pearl, thanks so much. Thank you very much. The most exciting and critically acclaimed Exhibition of the Fall Season is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Items is Fashion Modern, explores 111 garments and accessories, 
from doorknocker earrings and the little black dress to the bucket hat and the white t-shirt, items that have had a profound impact on the world over the last century. Get more info at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents the Medici's painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu dolci for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Joe Steffens, who, along with Matthias Neumann, has written and edited Unpacking My Library, Artists and Their Books, which was recently published by Yale University Press. It's the third in a series that has also spotlighted the libraries of architects and writers. Among the artists featured in the book are Janet Cardiff and George Beerus Miller, Mark Dion, Theaster Gates, Juan Geshi Mutu, Martin Parr, and Ed Ruscha. Joe Steffens, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Happy to be here. Why do the books that creative professionals own, in this case artists, interest you? Is it is it the books? Is it their personal libraries? It's a bit of both. I've been in the book trade for many, many years. I've been a book buyer. I was essentially curating book collections for some of these creative people. And after a while, I really was finding myself wanting other ways to promote books that kind of go outside of the usual sort of commercial routes. And so I had the idea to, in fact, ask architects, as the case was with the first book that was initially an exhibit. So I really thought that looking into some of these top architects' libraries would be able to tell us something about their creative process and reveal something about the the nature of, of the owner. So I think both of those things are true. So that last bit you said is something I, I, I think about a lot in, in, in my own professional writing and history and research life. What do you think we learn by knowing and even seeing what books an artist or architect or writer has? Well, it's very individual to the person. And that's really the crux of, of the project. I think private libraries reveal very rich veins of exploration and interesting niches compelling tendencies, and you see those with the deeply influential books that are presented by, you know, these various artists, architects, and writers. I think there's a broad understanding among historians and people who work on artists how important it can be to understand and and how much can be learned from what an artist is reading. I think of how a few years ago the Judd Foundation put Donald Judd's library online. And they did it not just in, in, in terms of a list, but they, they published photographs of how Judd organized his books so that you could even see how things he put together might have been part of his thinking. Well, I absolutely adore Donald, Donald Judd's, Judd's pardon me, library with the, you know, the plywood benches, the long table in the middle. You know, it would all, almost be my ideal library. It's, it's not... Um, Definitely not high tech. It's quite warm and comfortable, but it's all about the shelves 
on the table where you can pull the books out and and open them up and and they'll you know dive in. Yeah, we'll have a we'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com. So this book includes interviews with each of of 10 artists, kind of nine artists and then Janet Cardiff and George Beerus Miller work together mostly and there's a separate interview with each of them. And for each of those artists, you show us how they shelve and store their books. The one kind of different one or the most different one is Mark Dion, who does something else entirely. Could you tell us the story of how you came to pick him for the book and then <laughs> those pictures of, of his library, as it were? <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> you know, I've been a long time fan of Mark Dion. And I was suspecting that he'd have a marvelous library, but I was somewhat surprised, I would say, not completely surprised, that his own library almost looks like one of his installations. Oh, my God. Not almost. (laughs) (laughs) It is an installation. It is an art piece. And this was not done for the photo shoot at all. This is how it looks. And so there's this almost falling down stack of, you know, three columns of vertical books in back of this gazelle-like head, you know, like a taxidermy head. and Literally a gazelle's head, yes. Yeah, so little objects, animals. I mean, the whole thing looks like it's about to collapse. And probably is. Uh-huh, which is probably something he tries to avoid in his actual art installations. <laughs> when, when you picked Mark Dion for the book, did you know that's what you were getting? Or was that just, you know, an Easter egg? I didn't know that's what I was getting. Sometimes I have a little foreknowledge of maybe the number of books or that it's a you know, sizable library, but I don't ever know the details of the actual physical space and shelves. And I think it was just the perfect, the perfect home library of Mark Dion's. And he has little like artifacts from actual exhibits, I'm quite sure that are stuck in the shelves, like the books that are wooden spine from like bark of the wood. Yeah, it, it, and he also has, in, in, in one of his piles of books or cabinets of books, there are a bunch of, bunch of bird cages on top, which I think I recognize too. So Mark Dion, big curiosity about what his library might look like, good suspicion that he'd have an impressive library. You know, So we, we got very lucky. You know, the, the selection process is not third book seemed rather cursed. In fact, Ellsworth Kelly had been confirmed to be in the book, and of course he passed, and that couldn't happen. Sarah C. had a, a family emergency and had to pull out, but up in the book, you know, we've approached, you know, twice as many more. The obvious contrast to Mark Dion's uh, just extraordinary accumulation of books and other stuff. Cabinet of curiosities. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he really does turn a, a library into a cabinet of curiosities, doesn't he? But but 180 degrees away from what he does is what the Astor Gates does. Why are his shelves so tidy? And should we be suspicious of someone whose bookshelves are that tidy? Well, the Astor Gates has a somewhat different motivation for his book collection Mark Dion's is obviously very personal. And in fact, in his top 10 list, he requested that the books be in the order that he discovered them in his life. Yeah, so that lends it even a more personal touch. Theaster Gates inherited Prairie Avenue's books 
inventory when they were going out of business in Chicago. And that started the core of his collection. He also was gifted the archive for Jet Magazine and the University of Chicago Slide Archive. So, you know, given Theaster Gates's involvement in rejuvenating sort of areas of Chicago that need new life injected into them, he purchased certain buildings. This one in the book is part of the Dorchester Projects. And so he turned a house into a library, essentially, and he put these collections in that library. And so it's larger, and it's not his home. So in, in that respect, it's different than Stion's home library in his apartment in northern Manhattan. But Theastra Gates's collection, mind you, if you look at the books that he decided to highlight from the books at the Dorchester Projects. There's some very rare, well-loved, and specific titles that you would really never find, like The History of the Fan. That's that's the one that puzzled me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, like an older Japanese book and the Hamada Potter book. Um, Theaster was trained as a potter. And the books on the subject of slavery, like these are really historical artifacts. So I think he pulled some of that archival material from the collection. I thought it was interesting that Wangeshi Mutu had her books on on shelves above her desk, which that part of it is not unusual, but that her books and her collection was interspersed with the stuff out of which she makes her art. So, and, and I mean the actual physical stuff, such as the eyes for collages. There's there's a a drawer for that. Well, or the ink she uses in 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 her works on paper, there are are jars of ink, and this material is just completely surrounded by you know her books. Was that unique? Yeah, th- this is her studio library, and we don't often get the opportunity to photograph a complete library. That's her library and her studio library. Many artists have both a studio library and a home library. So this is Wangechi's actual working library and her home library. Are you there when the pictures are being made? I try to be for most of them. I'm not there for all of them. It's just a logistical thing, but I definitely prefer to be there. And I was there for all the photography for the architect's book. Did did you so did, I don't know if you were there for the for the Mutu pictures, but did it jump out to you as well that her books were kind of one of a piece with her art-making material in terms of where it was and and how readily at hand both were? Yeah, absolutely. And her interview, my co-editor, Matthias Neumann, helped on this chapter, and many of the questions were really focused on the material in her library and the paper material from the magazines that she uses in her collages. And so that was covered in her interview quite extensively. There's a great bit in the interview that I'm sure whichever archivist in 40 years ends up having the Mutu papers in in their institution, you know, whether that's the New York Public Library or whatever, will seize on. And that is that Mutu talks about how she frequently makes drawings instead of notations inside of, of her books and how that was value or how that is valuable to her. So, you know, she can access from where she's sitting at her computer doing her daily email, 
the stuff she makes her art out of, drawing notes and books, all within like the same three feet of of, of wingspan. <laughs> That's right. And I love the way that she puts little mementos in her books. All of that kind of ancillary sort of flotsam in her life is, just goes right into her artwork. So the Mark Dion pictures obviously caught my eye for, you know, because they're just bizarre and great. But the the most surprising picture maybe, which as I thought about it became less and less surprising, was a picture of Ed Richet's library. And it's a stack of books, kind of, you know, a custom built stacking thing for a series of books on the end of one of his bookcases. What What did Ed Richet stack and what did you think of that? Yeah, Ed Richet's library reminded me of some of the architect's library in the first book. And in the first book, we really did focus a little more on the physical shelves because the architects cared a lot about that. And and we kind of mapped out the shelves in the book. But the artists were more of a mix. But Ed Richet's employs a librarian. And he also supplied me with a separate sheet that didn't make it into the book of his categories. And so it's alphabetical and by category. And he has like four kind of large categories. And then he has about 65 subcategories within that. So it's it's uh, really well organized. And the end piece, we didn't talk specifically so much about that because it's less kind of books and more film and archival material. And he had a lot of boxes around that are contains some of his own books that he kind of didn't want the photographer to photograph. His brother, Paul, did the photography for us. The the stack of books I was thinking of was the stack of dictionaries. Oh, right. And he's actually leaning on a kind of dictionary table. The the picture of him personally, yeah. Yeah, the portrait. But he um he has a a lot of primary source material. And so I think of the dictionaries as as really part of that. It's funny how you don't see large dictionaries so much anymore. But he has two of the illustrated American Heritage. The American Heritage has the little illustrations by each entry, which is really great. There's a visual Macmillan, the old Random House standby, two Random House unabridged editions. So as I mentioned in the intro, this is the third in a series, architecture and writers were the other other two. You know, in doing this across several disciplines now, what have you learned about how people who create, whether they're architects, writers, or artists, use books and their libraries in, in their work? What I find most interesting is the threads among each discipline and within each book uh, between the artists or architects or writers, as the case may be. And I'm continually surprised. I was surprised with the first book, you know, assumption that there might be some connections. But, you know, with architects, Robert Venturi's Complexity and Contradiction Library, and what was really surprising with artists and their books, and, and then, of course, you like to sort of see if you have any of the books, any of these <laughs> Other people have. And so with Artisan, it's had Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown, which I read as a, a young teenager and had really kind of forgotten about Revelation. Like, why that book? Why Janet Cardiff and Billy Childish and Mark Dion? And Mark Dion has a quote about 
Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee that I refer to in the interview. That was a landmark book for him, and it opened up a melancholy place in me which has never closed. And so to me, the books that have been most influential or most important to people are those books that create, I guess one thing that's true for all of the books in the series is that literature is as important to to anybody working in any of these disciplines. And, you know, the thing about, again, it promotes this genuine sense of hum, human solidarity and empathy, a really pleasing discovery for me to see that thread throughout all three books. Joe Steffens, thanks so very much. Tyler, it's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.